Welcome to the Students of Surgery podcast series, where we shed light on common surgical topics. Welcome back to our podcast. And today we have Dr. Meryl Oyomno, Head of Colorectal Surgery at Steve Biko Academic Hospital. And we're going to be talking about colorectal cancer. Welcome, Dr. Oyomno. What is colorectal cancer? Good morning, Prof, and good morning, the listeners. Colorectal cancer is cancer that involve the large intestines. And we begin by talking about them from the ileocecal junction, that is the cecum, descending colon, transverse colon, descending colon, the sigmoid colon, and the rectum. We are not talking about anal cancers, which involve the anal canal, which is a terminal part of the large intestine. Are there different kinds of colorectal cancers? They are. They are all called colorectal cancers because they occur in the colon and the rectum, but they can be adenocarcinoma, which is a cobalt type that we see. They can also be lymphomas that occur in the colon and rectum. We can also get gastrointestinal stromal tumors, the gists, and many other tumors. Who gets colorectal cancer? So in discussing the epidemiology of colorectal cancer, we do know that in terms of age, it is a cancer commonly associated with the older age groups. The mean age is about 67 years and older. But be aware that we are seeing an increase in incidence of younger patients with colon cancer. Does gender play a role? Yes, gender does play a role. In colon cancers, that is from the cecum to the sigmoid colon, the ratio is one to one, male to female. But in the rectal cancers, they are more common in males than female patients. What are the risk factors for colorectal cancers? There are multiple risk factors that predispose to colorectal cancers. These can be environmental factors, and we can also talk about personal and genetic or epigenetic factors. So some of these factors in general may include smoking, excessive alcohol use, obesity, dietary factors, for example, diet that is high in red meat or processed meat is also a risk factor of colorectal cancer. In terms of genetic factors or personal factors, a previous history of colorectal cancer is a risk factor of you getting a recurrent or a subsequent colorectal cancer. And also medical conditions that the patient may have, for example, inflammatory bowel disease, Crohn's disease, ulcerative colitis, increase the patient's risk of getting colorectal cancer. Other genetic factors are a family history of colorectal cancer, meaning your parents or your grandparents had it. And if you do have a history predisposing you to colonic polyps or conditions such as Lynch syndrome that may be an inherited genetic mutation or FAP, a polyposis syndrome, familial adenopolyposis coli that predisposes you also to colorectal cancer. What is the pathogenesis of colorectal cancer? In discussing the pathogenesis of colorectal cancer, one must be aware that there are different pathways. There are molecular pathways that have been predisposed to colorectal cancer. One of those is, for example, the microsatellite instability pathway. But I think for most people to remember, the most important one is the adenoma to carcinoma sequence. The adenoma to carcinoma sequence basically talks about the progression from a small polyp beginning within the colon and this growth progressing, not only increasing in size, but increasing in differentiation to the point where it becomes a tumor. 
During this whole process, there are various genetic changes and various genes that are involved that predispose it to becoming a cancer. You can have, for example, activation of proto-oncogenes, for example, the KRAS, that makes it to begin to grow and become a tumor. Then you have inactivation of some of your tumor suppressor genes, for example, your P53, meaning that if that is suppressed, the growth continues uncontrolled, and that ultimately leads to the development of the cancer. It takes about eight years in average people to progress from a small polyp to becoming a tumor, but we are aware that in patients with some inherited conditions, this progression can be much faster to be less than two years. Are there any other pathways that our students should know about? Yes. The other pathways are molecular pathways that patients should, students should know about. For example, like I mentioned, the microsatellite instability pathway, the EPCAM pathway must also be known. But I think it's important for students to recognize that when we talk about colorectal cancers, broadly divided into sporadic, and inherited colorectal cancers. Sporadic colorectal cancers occur randomly and these tend to be in older patients with no inherited genetic mutations. While the inherited colorectal cancers involve germline mutations, meaning that there's a genetic mutation that has been inherited from the parents down to you and from the patient down to the, their offspring. And these can be, for example, the genetic mutations that predispose you to FAP, familial adenopolyposis collar, or genetic mutations that are responsible, for example, for Lynch syndrome. Are there any pre-malignant conditions that our students should be aware of? Polyps are considered to be pre-malignant conditions because, as we mentioned, they can progress from a polyp to becoming a cancer. What we need to be aware of is that we would like to remove these polyps early, if possible, to present, prevent them from developing into cancers later. There are features that we look at in polyps that make us concerned that this is a high-risk polyp. In general, we would look at the type of polyp. Is it a pedunculated polyp? Is it a sessile polyp? A sessile polyp being a worse off condition or a poor prognosis factor. We would look at the differentiation. If there's a biopsy done or the polyp has been removed, we would want to know is it a well-differentiated or a poorly differentiated. A poorly differentiated polyp is a worse prognostic factor also. We would also look at whether it is a villus adenoma or was it a tubular villus adenoma with a villus adenoma having a worse prognosis also. These are some of the features that would guide us to be able to say for this particular patient, considering the patient's risk and the risk features of the polyp, how often should this patient come back for surveillance colonoscopies to make sure that no other polyps come back? There are patients that will ask to come back within six months, somewhere depending on the findings, a two-centimeter polyp or one-centimeter polyp. We may ask them to come within a different duration, a year or two. How do patients typically present that have a, a colorectal cancer? Patients with colorectal cancer present with multiple symptoms, and these can be quite varied. The most common are parietal bleeding. Early on, they may present issues of change in bowel habits, if it's quite late, bowel obstruction. Typically, patients will not tell you they've experienced a change in bowel obstruction. What they will describe and what you need to elicit from them is symptoms of having periods of constipation and thereafter tending to have a, about a week or so of constipation and then subsequently diarrhea, which will tend to be the overflow diarrhea. Vomiting tends to be a late presentation. Or they may present with significant weight loss. What would be your approach to investigating a patient who may have a, either a colonic or a rectal tumor? 
When we see a patient in clinic presenting with these features or having been referred to us from another doctor with suspected colorectal cancer, our beginning investigation is we want to see whether we can confirm if this is a colonorectal cancer or not. So we would begin multiple tests simultaneously. Some of the tests we would do would be, for example, we would begin by doing x-rays for this patient, a chest x-ray and abdominal x-ray. The importance of an abdominal x-ray is in a patient who tells you they have features of that you've elicited a suggestive of bowel obstruction, you need to be aware to not try and give them bowel preparation, the four liters to do bowel preparation and cause complete obstruction when you're preparing for a colonoscopy. Rather make sure on your you don't have features of bowel obstruction. The chest x-ray may also rule out obvious major lung metastasis or cannonball. Our next test would be to want to get do a colonoscopy in this patient. A colonoscopy would enable us to be able to identify whether there is a tumor or not by looking at the entire rectum and colon. What is the site of that tumor? Be able to take a biopsy of the tumor to send off the lab to confirm if it is an adenocarcinoma. Be able to assess whether we could get through the tumor beyond to examine the rest of the colon. And if you're able to do that, then it means you're not too worried about your patient being completely obstructed. If you're unable to go through the tumor because the tumor is also almost causing obstruction, that may subsequently affect your management about how you're going to relieve that obstruction before treatment is done for the patient, for example, if they're going to be getting radiotherapy. And the colonoscopy would also enable you during that period to remove other pre-malignant lesions that may be seen. For example, if you see a tumor in the sigmoid colon, but the patient has a small polyp in the ascending colon, those polyps would still need to be removed. And finally, a colonoscopy is also advantageous because in a patient who we have established the patient has multiple metastases and this tumor is incurable, meaning that we have to palliate this patient. If the patient has features of almost getting obstruction, we may decide to do a stent to help relieve the obstruction. Colonoscopy will also help you to rule out other synchronous colon cancers, which means that the patient may have a sigmoid colon tumor, but at the same time, they also have a tumor in the ascending colon or in the circum, which may be a feature seen commonly in patients with inherited colorectal cancer syndromes. So once you've done the colonoscopy and the biopsy comes back confirming a malignancy, what is your further workup of the patient? Once our biopsy has come back confirming a colorectal cancer and adenocarcinoma, our next investigation would be to do a staging CT scan. This would be to tell us whether the patient has metastasis or not. So in this staging, the CT scan would include a CT scan of your chest, your abdomen and the pelvis. And this would be done for all patients with colorectal adenocarcinoma. We would also send blood tests off, for example, a CEA, carcinoma embryonic antigen, which is a tumor marker for colorectal adenocarcinoma. But please note that the CEA is not used for diagnosis of colorectal cancer. This CEA level would be used as a baseline that subsequently can be monitored after treatment and also when we'll go into the surveillance phase not for diagnosis. Are there other blood tests you would do apart from just a CEA? Yes, there are. 
other than the CEA, other blood tests that we would do for a patient diagnosed on colonoscopy with colorectal adenocarcinoma would include the liver function test and the kidney function test, the UNE. These would be important because subsequently, if we anticipate that this patient's treatment may include going to theater, receiving anesthetic, or undergoing chemotherapy, those organs need to be functioning at an optimal level. In our setup in South Africa, we also do a HIV test for all patients diagnosed with colorectal cancer. The reason being HIV, a cancer is an AIDS-defining condition, and therefore these patients optimally would need to be on their HIV treatment prior to them receiving chemotherapy. Um, we tend to do the HIV test early upon diagnosis of the cancer while we are still doing other imaging investigations because then we can get a chance to get the patient to get counseling and also for the patient to start their, uh, their HIV therapy, the ARVs. Once you've done your staging CT scan, are there any other radiological investigations you would do and why? Yes, there are. Other than the staging CT scan, which will tell us if the patient has metastasis to other organs, for example, the liver and the lung, for patients with specifically with rectal cancer, so remember for your colon cancer patients, a staging CT scan is enough. Tumors from the cecum to the sigmoid colon. But for patients with rectal cancer, a CT scan is not sufficient for local staging, meaning that on a CT scan, we cannot see what layers of the bowel the tumor is invading for us to determine whether this patient would need neoadjuvant therapy or surgery straight away. And therefore, for rectal cancers, we must always do an MRI of the pelvis. This MRI will give us better soft tissue delineation and enable us to be able to say whether this is a T1, T2, T3 tumor, T4 tumor, so that we can determine the treatment. Other modalities that can be mentioned and may be mentioned in some cases is, for example, a transanal ultrasound that may be mentioned in some setting. In, that's for very low rectal cancer. In our setup, the difficulty with a transanal ultrasound is one, availability, and two, many of our patients present with very large tumors that are almost obstructing, and we can't get the prop in or it's very painful. And also it's operator dependent in terms of trying to differentiate and determine is this T1, T2, while an MRI is something that can be easily and clearly interpreted. So we tend to do a staging CT scan and an MRI of the pelvis. In the past, we used to use barium enemas. Is there any role for a barium enema nowadays? Currently, in hostels like Steve Vick Academic Hospital, where we are, we don't really have a role for the barium enemas. Uh, this is because we have access to CT scan, we have access to colonoscopy, which will tell us a lot more information. The other concern with the barium enemas is that typically when you give the barium, it's quite thick. And in patients who had partial bowel obstruction or where the tumor was quite large and what was left as the lumen of the bowel in that area was a very small area, the barium would flow through in a liquid form. But subsequently with time, that becomes quite thick and aggregates in that area and may result in the patient developing a complete obstruction. The other concern with barium is that the main information it will tell you is that they will see features of, for example, an apple collision suggestive of a colorectal cancer, but that does not give you a histologic diagnosis. You subsequently still have to go back and do a colonoscopy on this patient to biopsy that tumor and determine that it is an adenocarcinoma. 
And if you've used barium, the barium also can cut, it's quite thick and cuts the tip of your colonoscope, which makes carrying out a colonoscopy subsequently to that patient very difficult and has to be delayed for a while. So we don't really have a role for barium enemas currently. You will see a few patients who may have a barium enema done if they're coming from small rural or peripheral hospitals, but we would still proceed to do our our colonoscopy and CT scans for them. How do you classify colorectal cancer? Classification of colorectal cancer has progressed over the years. Previously, we used old systems, for example, the Duke system. What is currently used now is the TNM system. T stands for the tumor, N for the node, and M is going to be for metastasis. Once we have done our colonoscopy, CT scan, looking for metastasis, and our MRI of the pelvis, for example, in rectal cancer, we will then be able to determine if what the TNM staging of the tumor is, where T1 can be tumor, will be tumors which are within the submucosa, T2 will be tumors that have gone beyond the submucosa and are involved in the muscularis, and then T3 will be tumors that have gone into the mesorectal fat. These T3 tumors can be subclassified into T3A, B, C, and D, which talk about how much they have invaded into the mesorectal fascia. Is it less than one to five millimeters? Is it five to 15 millimeters? Is it more than 15 millimeters? And T4 tumors will be tumors that have gone beyond the mesorectal fat to invade the mesorectal fascia and T4A involved in the mesorectal fascia T4B, the tumor has now gone beyond that and is evading into the adjacent organs. For example, the prostate in male patients or the seminal vesicles. In female patients, it could be involved in the posterior wall of the vagina. What is your general approach to managing a patient that has a confirmed colorectal cancer? The current guidelines internationally and locally indicate that for a patient diagnosed with colorectal cancer, this treatment must never be carried out with one doctor individually. Patients who have got cancer must also always be treated in a multidisciplinary team setting. This meeting will involve your liver hepatobiliary surgeons, cardiothoracic surgeons who may be consulted in patients who have got lung metastases, will involve the radiologist who will then open up the imaging of the CT scans and the MRIs and review them. We will then also have the radiation oncologist who give the radiotherapy the medical oncologists that give the chemotherapy. We do have the nursing staff who are also available to offer the patients further support in that case and the colorectal surgeons. In this MDT setting, all patients will be discussed and a treatment plan created for them. So in patients with a potentially curable colon cancer, how would you manage them? If it is a colon cancer and a rectal cancer, the treatment is slightly different. For a colon cancer, the modalities available for us for treatment are either surgically to resect the tumor or another option we may have is to medically give chemotherapy to these patients. For surgical options for the patients, the surgical option will depend on the location of the tumor. So for tumors located on the right side of the colon, we're talking about cecum, ascending colon, and the proximal part of the transverse colon, this is considered to be the right side of the colon, we tend to offer surgery in the form of a right hemicolectomy, where we would cut out that right side of the colon, and subsequent to that, we would either anastomose the terminal 
part of the small intestine, terminal ileum, to the transverse colon that's left there to give them an ileotransverse anastomosis. For tumors involved in the left side of the colon, we will then also be able to offer the patient, that's a distal transverse colon, descending colon, we'll be able to offer a left hemicolectomy with an anastomosis of the transverse, the proximal part of the transverse colon, which can be anastomosed lower down to the sigmoid of the patient. If it's a tumor involving the sigmoid colon, we can decide to do a, a sigmoid colectomy for the patient. In patients who have subsequently had their cancer resected, we always need to review the histology results to determine whether this patient will need chemotherapy or not. Chemotherapy that is given post the surgical resection is known as adjuvant chemotherapy. And there are features that we look at to tell us, does this patient need adjuvant chemotherapy? We target cancer cells that have gone beyond the tumor and are in the circulation with our adjuvant chemotherapy. Meaning that this may be a patient who on the initial CT scan we do not see any metastasis, the lung or liver. But based on the report from the pathologist of the tumor resected, we see features that tell us that this tumor has gone beyond just the bowel and there may be tumor cells within the circulation. Some of these features are, for example, we would be looking to see what T stage the tumor is. Remember T1 was tumors in the submucosa, T2 in the muscularis, T3 in the submucosa, and T4 going beyond. For tumors that are considered to be T3 and above, those are large tumors that we would suspect have a higher chance that they've already begun to make these tumor cells within the bloodstream. We would also look at the lymph nodes harvested during the surgery. During the surgical resection, whether it's a right hemicolectomy or a left hemicolectomy, we try to make sure that we take out the lymph nodes draining that part of the bowel. So that means would be in the right hemicolectomy, the lymph nodes around the right colic artery and vein in that area. The pathologist would then look at this specimen and be able to see how many lymph nodes have been harvested. The guidelines are that you should have a minimum of at least 14 lymph nodes harvested and they would look at these 14 lymph nodes, if they are more or if they are less, how many of those lymph nodes have come back positive for tumor cells. Because the presence of tumor cells within the lymph nodes tells us that these tumor cells are already in the circulation and our surgery is not enough, we need to give adjuvant chemotherapy. What are some other features that you look for in the histology report? Features on histopathology examination that tell us the patient has lymphovascular invasion, perineural invasion, a Crohn's-like effect. High-risk features like that would be suggested that this patient is a patient who would benefit from adjuvant chemotherapy to prevent the tumor coming back. Do all patients with colon cancer get adjuvant chemotherapy? So not all patients with colon cancer would end up with adjuvant chemotherapy. For patients who the tumor was quite early, a T1 or a T2, they may be able to get away without requiring adjuvant chemotherapy. Earlier you mentioned that some patients actually get their chemotherapy before surgery, so in other words, neoadjuvant chemotherapy. Which group of patients would these be? Neoadjuvant chemotherapy is quite common for rectal cancers, but in, in our discussion now as we're talking about colon cancers, it is not very often that we give neoadjuvant chemotherapy to patients with colon cancers, but there are patients who do qualify for this. 
these tend to be patients with locally advanced tumors. So we're talking about patients in whom the tumor has gone beyond the colon and is then subsequently invading into adjacent structures. So for example, a colon cancer tumor that has grown in to involve the duodenum, a colon cancer tumor that has gone beyond to involve the gerotus fascia around the kidney. So for some of these patients, we may give neoadjuvant therapy that may help to shrink the size of this tumor and subsequently improve our resection later so that when we go to resect and cut out this tumor, we still end up with clear margins. And what is your approach to a patient with rectal cancer? So it's very important to recognize whether your patient had a colon cancer or a rectal cancer because the approach is slightly different. With rectal cancers, we have an extra modality available to us in the form of radiotherapy that we often don't use for colon cancers. Um, with patients with rectal cancer, our approach typically would be, is this a smaller tumor? Meaning that it's less than a T3B. So remember we mentioned about doing an MRI to tell us the T staging, whether it's a T1, T2, T3, T1, subucosa, T2, muscularis, T3, mesorectal fat. T4, it's going into the fascia and to other organs. For patients with early uh, rectal adenocarcinoma, T1s, T2, and our T3A and B, these are patients who we can offer surgery as a first option because it means that we can go in and do the resection around the TME plane where that mesorectal fascia is and not have the risk of leaving tumor cells within the patient. For those patients, we would offer them surgery upfront. But for patients who have bigger tumors that have gone in and are now invading almost to T3Cs, T3 that have D, and we're talking about tumors that have gone and are very close to the mesorectal fascia or have gone beyond, beyond the mesorectal fascia to invade other organs, for us to be able to resect that tumor, we would need to resect the whole tumor and not leave any tumor cells in. And if we do that upfront for surgery, we would either need to take all adjacent structures or we would have a very extensive surgery. So in these patients, we tend to offer them neoadjuvant before surgery, radiotherapy. And this radiotherapy would be given to shrink the tumor. They tend to give a few days of chemotherapy to these patients just to sensitize the tumor, but the main modality of treatment would be the radiotherapy that would act and would really shrink this tumor inside. We would then repeat our imaging in form of another MRI to be able to look and see this tumor has shrunk. We can now see our margins adequately so that we can then go in and do the resection for the patients. What is the timing of surgery once you've given patients with a rectal tumor a new adjuvant chemoradiotherapy? We typically tend to wait for at least eight weeks to repeat our imaging. And that means eight weeks before we repeat our MRI. The reason for this is if you do the MRI too early, the radiotherapy is still working and there's also gonna be a lot of edema. So you may not be able to see clearly how much of the tumor has shrunk. So typically the ideal timing is at eight weeks from the end of the radiotherapy, they get an MRI. And by the 12th week, there's when we tend to go in is the optimal time to go in and do the operation. What are the surgical options for patients with rectal cancer? We first have to look at what level the tumor is. 
So we typically divide the rectum into three thirds, an upper third, a middle third, and a lower third. For patients with tumors in the middle or the upper third of the rectum, we would do a procedure known as a lower anterior resection. Simply put, this would involve us doing an operation for the patient to go along the TME plane where we do a total mesorectal excision for the patient in that plane and be able to resect the rectal cancer and be able to join up, do an anastomosis for the patient if they're fit enough so that the patient does not end up with a permanent colostomy. How do you treat patients with tumors in the lower third of the rectum? For those patients, the concern is that if the tumor is involved in the anal sphincters and we have to cut out this tumor with a clear margin and not leave any tumor cells behind, it wouldn't mean that we have to take out the anal sphincters and we can't leave the patient being incontinent without sphincters. So the kind of operation done in that case would be an operation known as abdominal perineal resection, APR, which means that we do the abdominal part of the surgery we mobilize the rectum along the TMA plane all the way down as far down as possible and we then divide the bowel. We would give them a permanent colostomy bag and then we go to the perineum and be able and from that point we would dissect around the anus and completely remove the anus and the rectum. And that means the anal part because the patient now no longer has an anus, we would completely close that area and their colostomy bag will be permanent. So the, remember the surgeries are either a lower anterior resection or an AP resection and meaning that the patient would have a permanent colostomy. So in the scenario where a patient is not ready for curative surgery, what are the options for palliation? It basically means that we've determined that this patient can be cured, so how can we make them comfortable? We tend to look at their symptoms and then determine what we need to palliate. So if a patient is in pain, we would palliate by wanting to relieve their pain and giving them analgesia, and this would be according and in line with the World Health Organization pain ladder. We'd initially begin with something simple, say paracetamol, but for cancer patients, ultimately, you may end up at the point where you need to give them morphine. Just remember that morphine, the side effect of the opioids is constipation, so along with that, you may need to give them lactulose or an in terms of patients who the other problem with colorectal cancer patients, they may get bowel obstruction and we need to relieve that obstruction. As I mentioned previously, a colonoscopy and a stent may be an option. For patients who we cannot stent because the tumor is too low down next to sphincters or in a difficult to stent area or the stenting has failed, we may need to offer surgery in the form of a diverting colostomy proximal to where the lesion is. Are there any allied healthcare workers that you would involve in the palliation of these colorectal cancer patients? So we may need to also involve the psychologists. Patients are human beings and they may be struggling socially to deal with this. Once you've treated a patient for colorectal cancer, how do you follow them up? So once you've treated a patient with colorectal cancer, you now want to go into something we call surveillance. That is a patient who you treated with curative intent and you now want to continue following them up to make sure that the cancer doesn't come back or that if it comes back, you catch it early and it's still curable. So there's different modalities that you'll use in that case. We do blood tests where we look for tumor markers. For example, the CEA. Remember for your CEA, the level is zero to five, is a normal range. And what we're looking for is an increase in trend in the CEA level. So it doesn't just mean that you wait until your patient's CEA is above five. 
it means that every three to six monthly you will do the blood test and if your CEA is gradually going up from 2 to 2.5 to 3 to 3.5, be concerned that the patient has recurrence and do further tests. The second modality that we use is a CT scan, a CT scan of the chest, abdomen and pelvis, which will be done to tell us about whether there is recurrence in the lung or recurrence in the liver or in the peritoneum intra-abdominal the patient may have. And the third modality we can use is a colonoscopy, which is also done to look whether the patient has a recurrence in the colon. Remember that is a commonest site of recurrence of cancer in patients. All these modalities are timed at different ranges. The blood can be done three to six monthly, the CT scan can be done yearly or on alternate years, and the colonoscopy either at least once within five years, or if the patient had, had, hadn't had a full colonoscopy because they presented as an emergency with bowel obstruction, they should have a colonoscopy at least six months from the time of completion of their treatment. Um, you've mentioned surveillance. What about colorectal cancer screening practices? First of all, you must know the definition of screening. This is the use of modalities which are often preferably non-invasive and not very extensive for us to be able to investigate a patient who has completely no symptoms to pick up a disease in a very early stage. In this case, the colorectal cancer before it starts showing symptoms. Remember, once a patient starts showing symptoms, what you'll be doing is tests for the diagnosis, diagnostic tests. So for screening modalities, we currently do not have a colorectal cancer screening program in South Africa. We do have screening that is carried out for high-risk patients. So for example, patients with a family history of cancer, patients with conditions that predispose them to cancer, like for example, inflammatory bowel disease may get their colonoscopies more often. But for the general public, we don't have a standard screening, model, uh, screening program in place. If you have a patient to screen, how do you screen them? The modalities that would be used for screening patients include fecal occult blood. That is what is used overseas, for example, in the UK, from the time the patient stands 55 years of age. They get to do a fecal occult blood test. If that is positive, they then get called in to come and do a colonoscopy or a CT colonography for patients who can't undergo a colonoscopy. What about screening in a person who's got a primary family member who had colorectal cancer before? So that is a condition where we need to be concerned about because we do know that colorectal cancer can be hereditary. So in these patients, ideally it would be good to be able to find out what genetic mutation the parent or the relative had and that would give us a guideline of when the screening should be done. For example, we know that in cases with Lynch syndrome, the screening should be started at around the age of 25 years. We know for patients with FAP that will be much earlier, around almost 10-12 years. So, but in our setup locally, we often don't really know whether it's an inherited cancer or not and which condition it was. As a rule, in general, we say that for a patient who has had a parent or a relative with colorectal cancers, if it's a parent, the patient and the parent was less than 50 years of age, advise the children to get a colonoscopy at least 10 years before the parent had the cancer. Meaning if the parent was diagnosed with cancer at the age of 45, advise the children that by the age of 35, they should ideally have had at least one colonoscopy done. What about someone whose parents were older than 50 years old when they had their colon cancer diagnosed? Then 
fall back and tell the patients that as a rule, 50 years of age, they should get a colonoscopy done. If it's a patient diagnosed with colon cancer, tell them that their siblings who are around their age mates should also have at least a colonoscopy done. Dr. Yomno, do you have any final comments around colorectal cancer for us? I think the final comments for colorectal, on colorectal cancer that I'd like to leave with everyone is locally in South Africa, number one, be aware that colorectal cancer is not a disease of only elderly white patients. We are seeing a lot of colorectal cancer in young black patients also. So regardless of age, if a patient is presenting with symptoms suggestive of colorectal cancer, think peer bleeding, weight loss, change in bowel habits, think about it and send them for their appropriate investigations, not just a sigmoidoscopy, they may need a full colonoscopy. And the second thing is to be aware that colorectal cancer treatment has improved quite a bit. If a patient has metastatic disease, it does not mean incurable disease and palliation. For these patients, we are now offering resection of not just the colon rectal cancer, but also liver metastases, lung metastases can be resected and cure achieved in a patient. Thank you for your time and I'm sure we'll hear from you in the future. This edition of the Students of Surgery podcast has been produced by TuxFM. Visit www.tuxfm.co.za for young, fresh and relevant content. That was another edition of the Students of Surgery podcast series, where we shed light on common surgical topics.